United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. Joining me now, Billy Ford is Program Officer for Burma for the United States Institute of Peace, here to discuss what's happening in Burma slash Myanmar. It's been just about a year since that uh, coup in uh, in the country and uh, an ensuing civil war. Billy, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. So uh, some news of Aung San Suu Kyi, four more years in, in prison. What a mess in this country. It seems like they just can't clear it. Yeah, I mean, almost a year after the coup, the peaceful protests, which began almost immediately after the military took power, um, they continue. But um, after the military junta began firing on protesters, communities started to take up arms and to defend themselves. And this armed resistance has escalated considerably in recent months. In um, September, the deposed elected government, uh, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, which is operating underground and is really at the center of a diverse and somewhat divided resistance movement, um, it declared war on the junta. And since that declaration of war, local militias have cropped up all over the country and have conducted daily attacks on the junta forces. And the junta has really responded by committing horrendous atrocities, including a brutal massacre on Christmas Eve. They've conducted regular airstrikes on civilian targets and are burning entire villages to the ground. Um, and because of the coup and subsequent violence, the economy is really in free fall and poverty is on the rise. Public education is virtually non-existent. The Internet's increasingly inaccessible because of censorship. And virtually all independent media has been banned or dissolved. COVID-19 is raging unchecked in the absence of a functioning health system. And food is increasingly scarce. I think 2.4 people received food assistance last year. Um, and over 300,000 people have been displaced since the coup, which is on top of the many who were displaced before the before the coup, including the more than one million um, Rohingya Muslims. So overall, I mean, the military hunters control of the situation and the country is shrinking. The hunters even withdrawing from remote bases and has gone so far as to arm the wives and the children of its soldiers to protect mm. their garrisons. But the resistance is composed of a diverse array of actors and has really failed to fully unify yet. And on the international stage, China has essentially thrown its lot in with the junta, um, blocking any action at the U.N. that could be decisive. And Southeast Asian nations are divided on how to respond. And the United Nations and Western countries have very little leverage with the regime. So overall, the international community has had fairly little effect on the conditions inside the country so far. It seems very isolated. But at the same time, I know whenever... um things go bad in Myanmar, there's always a concern it will destabilize some of its neighbors. Has that has that been an effect? Absolutely. I mean, I think this will probably be increasingly the trend, but um, we're seeing large numbers of refugees pour into Thailand and into India. Um, but neither country has kind of um, kind of uh, uh, established a policy to work with the uh, the humanitarian situation constructively and essentially create a humanitarian buffer or to provide adequate support there or to put adequate pressure on the military junta to um, kind of stem the underlying drivers of those refugee movements. So, um, yeah, I think this the, the health conditions, the economic conditions, the political collapse, um, all of this has implications for regional security and including U.S. interests in the region.
I mean, putting aside whether the imprisonment of Aung San Suu Kyi is appropriate or, you know, an abuse, whatever, putting aside the integrity of her imprisonment, it has been astonishing over the years to watch how she went from almost like a international political folk hero to, you know, a, a disgraced leader uh, once she got power. I mean, you remember like people making pilgrimages to her house, U.S. leaders, and, and making her an incredibly sympathetic figure. And then that just unraveled. Yeah, it's really a, a tragic story in so many ways. Um, and I can say that the the charges against her are completely absurd. I think one was for having walkie-talkies that were unregistered. So mm. these charges are completely political and trumped up. But she still holds um, a, kind of a, a position of extreme moral authority across the country and has enormous political weight. But the absence of her in um, at this moment in the political dialogues that are happening within the resistance movement, it's kind of an interesting trend because it's led to this dispersion of political power to kind of new ethnic minority communities and to young people, which has created openings for kind of more inclusive narratives of the country. And I think if this resistance movement is able to unify around those more inclusive narratives um, of who belongs in the political community of Myanmar, it could come together and potentially defeat this regime. Interesting. Um, I know the Institute of Peace concerns itself with nonviolent conflict de-escalation. That seems a very heavy lift in this in this country. Absolutely. I think um, the, the first few months of this uh, after the coup demonstrated um, uh, the difficulty of engaging with the regime in, the, in these ways. I mean, there's really no value in engaging in political dialogue or negotiations with this regime. They're not a good faith actor in that sense. Um, I think what the U.S. and organizations like USIP can do are, one, kind of try to build the strength, unity, and resilience of the resistance movement, and two, try to address the military hunter's capacity to sustain itself financially, militarily, and politically. I think to achieve that first goal, the U.S. could support these efforts that I mentioned to help unify the opposition movement um, that has little in common beyond a shared hatred of the military junta. Um, there are dialogues ongoing between these numerous opposition actors that we could support. And if those dialogues are successful, um, as I said, I think they, they, they could unify and defeat the regime. To, to achieve that second goal, I think the U.S. should increase its pressure on the regime. That said, um, unilateral pressure like what's been done so far um, will have little effect, and pressure pressure must really be coordinated with like-minded nations, particularly with allies that have leverage with the regime like India, Japan, and Singapore. Um, but maybe more urgently, the U.S. needs to find ways to reduce the suffering caused by the coup by providing humanitarian assistance. This is really challenged by the fact that it's very difficult to access the country safely. I mean, two mm -hmm. aid workers were actually killed by the junta um, on Christmas Eve. And the State Department is working extremely closely and hard with Thailand and India to provide cross-border aid. But we've seen little progress because neither country wants to upset the junta. Um, I should note that the U.S. Institute of Peace will soon publish a report that offers more detail on these recommendations. So keep an eye out on uh, for the Myanmar study group report in the coming weeks. Um, before I let you go, are, are outside uh, actors, countries, organizations funding and arming the resistance groups in Myanmar? Um, it's a very complex 
situation um, in that regard, I think um, China is actually arming both sides of the conflict as they have for more than 70 years in the ongoing civil war. Um, the weapons distribution is, is coming from many sources. Russia has become the junta's uh, really only ally um, on New Year's when they when they um, they only received essentially New Year's um, welcomes from Belarus, North Korea, and Russia, and even mm. China wasn't um, reaching out. So I think the the, the traditional arms um, sales, which have been coming from Israel and India and Russia and China for many years to the Myanmar military, um, has slowed somewhat and very much been concentrated from Russia recently. Um, and from the on the resistance side, the weapons, um, I, I think that it's a complex and uh, set of illicit uh, actors involved in arming the resistance movement. But um, I think the sources are coming from across the Thai border and the Chinese border, among other, a few other sites. But um, it's extremely complicated, and the demand for weapons is increasing rapidly as these resistance forces kind of grow at the community level. I think there's virtually there's a militia in virtually every township across the country, which is really straining the military's capacity to kind of control the situation as they sort of lose ground and um, the, the country sort of balkanizes into um, areas in which these militias and pre-existing ethnic armed organizations are um, increasingly controlling the territories that they um, occupy. Really grim. I really appreciate your insight. Billy Ford, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.